Hey, would you pray with me right quick? God, this morning as we open your word, God, I pray, God, for boldness today. God, I pray that we would stand on the truth of your word. God, Peter challenges these new believers to crave and have a desire for the pure milk of the word, which means all of it. And so God, this morning, as we stand on all of it, God, I pray that you would give us boldness to teach all of it. We love you and we thank you for what you're doing here in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I'm gonna go ahead and, and jump right in this morning. We've got a lot, I'm trying not to keep you too long, but if this is your first time or maybe the second week, whatever, um, just to fill you in, we we're, we're, have begun a journey about two weeks ago into the, the book of First and Second Peter, where over the next two months, we as a church will be reading through that together. There's soap journals out back. Um, I don't have time to explain all of that, but inside the cover of that soap journal, it gives your, your reading um, for, the, for, the, for the remainder of the week. And so we've just finished 1 Peter chapter two this week. And so that's what we're gonna be looking at this morning. Um, and I'll go ahead and warn you, when we're trying to preach through this chapter two, it's gonna look a lot like a ping pong table. We're gonna be going back and forth, back and forth all through this chapter. There's really no sequential way that the, God, that the Lord led us to walk through this today. So I'll ask you just to follow along best you can, um, but I'll try to make it as, as simple as I can too. Um, you know, me and my wife, we have four kids ranging from the ages of 12 to four. Um, so it's been a minute in our house since we've had a newborn baby or a baby, if you would. And there's some things that we often forget about when it comes to little bitty babies and how different they are than a four-year-old per se. And uh, my wife has started keeping a couple of kids during the week and, and so we've kind of be, have been reintroduced to a baby in the house. Praise the lamb, the beauty of this, guess what? They don't stay, <laughs> no offense. Maggie and Stephen, I'll share in a minute. But um, Monday, what was very interesting is how, how God aligns things and allows us to see things when, when we're in his word and how he just speaks um, through circumstances and through different situations. But I think it was Monday morning. Um, one of the kids that, that Chelsea keeps is, is Ellie Eckenroth, which is Stephen and Maggie's little girl. And, and everybody knows in the Hall household, even Stephen and Maggie, whether they want to admit it or not, I'm her favorite. I am, y'all laugh, but I'm her favorite. Because the second she sees me, when she comes into that house, ah, you know, all those googly and ah, and them eyes just watch you everywhere you go. That's what she does. And so, you know, I kind of ignore and really don't pay her a lot of attention. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm so, Shane's not his head. Congratulations, Grandpa. Look at him. He's, ex <laughs> she, mama's over there raising her hand too. Um, but, this was, I think, Monday, and I was sitting there holding Ellie and, you know, you know loving on her, watching her make all these, out, these eyes and these noises, and then all of a sudden, here comes the hall stampede. All four, all three of our kids, or the three of the oldest ones, they come running down the stairs. Ellie's here, Ellie's here, Ellie. And here they just come running over there, and, and all of a sudden, Andy grabs her. So Andy takes her from me, and I wasn't bitter about it at all. And, and so what I began to watch, I loved because what she started doing is she didn't act the same way with Andy as she did me. She started pushing against Andy, her face started turning red and started uh, just getting mean and aggressive. And I said, Andy, give her back to me. I'll fix this. I'll fix what's going on. So I reached over and I grabbed her and we got back in my recliner and guess what? She was still pushing. She was still, she was still red faced. She was still getting mad. And I was going, oh man, man, that was about to be a beautiful situation, but it ended up at not. But what I didn't understand and what I had not recognized is what she had seen. You see what Ellie had seen was my wife was in the kitchen and she had made a bottle. And she was shaking that bottle, making all those bottle noises. But what had happened was what used to entertain her in that moment, it didn't satisfy her anymore because she knew what was awaiting her in that bottle. She knew that that's where her strength was gonna come from. Her little tummy was hungry. She knew, and all of a sudden, we saw a desire change in her. 
which is exactly the picture that Peter paints in 1 Peter chapter 2. You see, he's talking about all of this transformation that would take place in these new Jewish believers who had stepped from Judaism into Christianity and believing and placing their faith in Jesus Christ. But he knew that there was gonna be some changes taking place. If, if you were here last week, you remember we talked about chapter one. Um, we didn't make our way all the way through the chapter, um, but the one thing that we did focus on was, was we realized that this is a letter that, that Peter is writing to encourage these new believers. And so what he did was he, he told them and reminded them of all God's promises to begin with. He reminded them of, of that they now had a living hope in Christ he talked about their inheritance. He told them that they now have a spot in heaven. And he also told them that they were protected by the power of God. And so he was reminding them of all of these things that come along with their newfound faith in Christ. But then he kind of changed gears and he talked about the reality of what they were living in. Because if you remember in the first part of that chapter, it said that the, because of their new faith, that they had been ran out of their hometowns and that they were now being spread across five different regions and being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. And so he said, look, I, the reality is, is this life here on this earth is going to be tough, but this is not your home. This is not your home. But then moving forward, he challenged them. And, and I hope we left here challenged last week to not run back to our old ways. To not run back to the bondage of what used to hold us down. But instead, when struggles and trials come in this life, don't run from God, but run to him. Run to the foot of the cross because this is where freedom comes from. And then he ended chapter one talking about the one thing that will never go away is the word of God. The spoken word of God is not going anywhere. And we read that in chapter one. If you're reading along with us at that very last part of that chapter, he says, all flesh is like grass, meaning all the things on this earth are like grass. All of its glory, like the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word which was preached to you. So not only is the inheritance that we now have as believers in Christ, it's not going anywhere. Neither is the word of God. But what he has seen happen is the word of God is what has transformed these new believers. The word of God is what transforms us today. And so what we have to do this morning is we want to look at what that transformation looks like what that transformation looks like. So I want you to look at verse one and two to start with, and then we're gonna kind of jump to the end of the chapter. Then we're gonna kind of jump back to the first. And so anyway, just follow, just get your head ready to do this right here, all right? Verse one of chapter two, he says, therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like a newborn baby's, like Eli Eckenroth, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. So what Peter begins doing is he challenges them once again and he tells them, hey, here's a few things that you're gonna have to lay aside. Because of your newfound faith in Christ, you're gonna need to lay aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. Throw those things away. Lay those things aside, but while you're laying those aside, there's one thing that you are going to pick up, and that is a new desire, a longing for the pureness of God's word. You're gonna long for the pure milk of God's word as a believer. And so before we really begin looking into this chapter, I wanna stop for just a moment and remind you of something today. That because of our new faith in Christ, because maybe today you're a newborn believer, maybe you've just surrendered your heart and your life to Christ, or maybe you've been saved for years. Here's what I want you to hear me to do here today. You are not going to grow in your faith and your knowledge of Jesus Christ without being in the word of God. 
It's very plain. It's very simple. There are people out there that will say, well, I can grow in my faith or I can grow in my knowledge of God and I don't really have to read this book. Can I tell you that they are badly confused? That this is the living word of God. This word is God breathed. And the beautiful part is, is this word is still breathing. This is the only way that we're gonna grow in our knowledge of who God is and who Jesus Christ is, is by reading about it in the word. And this is what he has left for us to learn. He hasn't left emotion. He hasn't left experiences, but this is what he has left. Now, once we are in this thing and once this thing begins to, to transform our lives, then comes the experiences, then come the emotion, but it's all fruit from the power of God's word. So here's the bottom line. No no word, no growth. It's that simple. No word, no growth. But Peter knew the same way that, that, that I know, the same way that God placed it on my heart for us to walk through first and second Peter together is because I know that if you will get in this living word of God, then it will do exactly what Peter told him it was going to do for them that it was going to grow in respect to their salvation. They're gonna grow. When you're in the word of God, when Chestnut Mountain Church is in the word of God, we are going to grow. You're not gonna grow coming and hearing me on Sunday mornings. You're not gonna grow just by coming once a week. You're only gonna grow as if you are in the word of God. It's that simple. So church, as I did last week, I challenge you in light of the word of God, learn it, love it, and live it. Learn it, love it, and live it. Now I find the word that, that Peter used to talk about the word is very interesting because it's the word pure. It's the word pure. He says that you will have a desire for the pure milk of the word. Now, I want us to pay very close attention to this word pure. Because where we have to be careful is when the word pure, when you define it, it means that it's unmixed and it's unadulterated, meaning that it's not diluted with extra stuff. It's not diluted with your thoughts or my thoughts. But also it's not diluted with extra things, but it's complete and it's absolute. But also when we talk about it in completeness, it means that we don't leave any of it out. That kind of stings, doesn't it? But if we have a desire for the pure milk of the word, we have a desire for all of it. But you know, the easy thing to do with God's word is to pick and choose what we want to read and what we want to follow and what we want to listen to. But if we have a desire for the pure milk, we have a desire for all of it. Now look, I'm not saying that it's all going to feel good, that it's all going to give you the warm fuzzies. Thank God it doesn't. But the reason that we even have to address this, the reason that we even have to mention this is we live in a world who is teaching convenience rather than conviction. We are teaching, we are living in a world where it's not popular to talk about conviction, but oh, it is easy to talk about convenience. And you can go to churches within just miles of here where the only thing you're gonna hear is convenience. You're not gonna hear a lot of conviction. I remember playing basketball in college with two guys and they were trying to find a church. And I remember their statement was this. They said, Brian, we just can't find a church. Man, every time I go to that church, I leave feeling bad about myself. Every time I leave that church, I don't leave feeling good about who I am. Praise God. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now what you do with it is the result. And we're gonna talk about that just a little bit later as we continue going on this morning. But chapter two in particular is one of those chapters 
that if these new Jewish believers are reading this letter that Paul has written to encourage them, if they're reading through chapter two, chapter two is one of those chapters where they could have picked and choose several different sections or segments because they made them feel a little bit better about themselves. But I don't know about you, but if you got serious and dug into chapter two this week, the spirit of God convicted. The spirit of God showed me things in my life that aren't glorifying him. And so when we look at those verses, when we look at the verses that maybe these new believers that they, that they were wanting to focus on because they made them feel good, I call those like pep rally verses. Because I can find some pep rally verses in chapter two. Because in chapter two, you can read and you don't have to read, follow along with me, but I'll read them for the sake of time. But just in chapter, in verse five, Peter's telling them, because of their newfound faith in Christ, you also, a living stone, are being built up as the spiritual house for the holy priesthood. That sounds empowering, does it? God is using me to build his royal priesthood, to build his church on planet earth. God is using me for that. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of empowering. Doesn't that make you kind of feel like a macho man? Yeah, because mm, so you can imagine that they probably felt that when they read it. They thought, you know what? He's using me. Man, that feels good. Man, that's empowering. But then they look on down in verses nine and 10 and it's the same thing. Here's a rally for, the, for these new Jewish believers. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but you are now the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you would have received mercy. Man, who can't rally around that? Who can't rally around that? Then again, in verses 24 and 25, this is one that kind of is humbling. But it says that, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, we are healed. And for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. You see, the reason that these Jewish new believers could to rally around all of that is the very reason that we rally around certain verses in the Bible because they make us feel better about ourselves because there's a rally cry that comes along with it. And all of these verses, again, are tied back into their inheritance, what is for them, what is God doing for them, and so it's very easy to get excited about what somebody's leaving you. It's very easy to get excited about these things. But if we're not careful, if we pick and choose which verses that we want to read, which verses we want to look at, we miss two more things that Jesus left. That Jesus is leaving, that Jesus has left even for you and I as newborn believers as followers of Jesus Christ, as the New Testament church, I want you to look at verse 21. And this is where kind of our focus is gonna come from today, but again, don't get comfortable because we're gonna be bouncing. But in verse 21, he tells them, for you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving, there it is, leaving, he's left something else for us, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Do we realize the weight that is in that verse? Because when we look at the phrase there that, that, that Peter uses, leaving you an example, that phrase comes from a Greek word and you pronounce it hupogramos. But what that word means when it is translated, when he's talking about living you an, leaving you an example, the term hupogramos was something that teachers would use in order to teach a child how to write. And what that teacher would do is when they were trying to teach them how to write their alph alphabet is they would lay that letter on a flat top surface 
And then they would take a sheet of paper or whatever materials they had and they would lay it over the letter that was underneath it so that the child could see the letter under the sheet of paper. And then what the child was challenged to do was the, ch the child was challenged to take a writing utensil and trace the lines of that letter. And what the teacher was doing was teaching that child the lines to follow so that they could learn how to write, so that they could learn their alphabet because what the teacher was wanting them to do was to trace exactly what was under it. So when Jesus Christ, it says he's left us an example, what we are now to be called to do as the New Testament church is we are to trace and follow the footsteps of Jesus. That's tough. That is tough. And it says that he left us the example that he wants us to follow. He left an example that he wants you to follow. He left an example that he wants me to follow. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through some of those footsteps. We're going to walk through and look at some of the footsteps that Jesus has left for us to follow in. And they, they unpack several of them right here in verse 22. He shares some of the footprints. He says, he, to, to pick back up off of the end of 21, he says, he is leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So we see three footsteps right here that Jesus has left for us to walk in. And the very first one that it's talking about is it says that the one who committed no sin. Now, look, let me go ahead and relieve you a little bit. We can't live up to that. We are all sinners saved by grace. But what this is referring to is the way Peter called us out at the end or the way he called these new believers out in the end of chapter one, when he reminds them, you are to be holy because I am holy. So as a follower of Jesus Christ, our job now is to pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness, to walk in the footsteps of Christ who is holy. But here's the beautiful part of the grace that comes with Christ is when we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus, here's the reality, church. We're gonna step out. We're gonna trip up. We're gonna fall. We're gonna not trace the lines exactly, but thank God for grace. Thank God that when I walk, his hand never lets go. Thank God that his footsteps are firm because mine aren't. But as a believer in Christ, it is my job now to do everything I can to try to walk in those footsteps that Christ has left for me. And then it says that he was with no deceit, meaning that he didn't speak anything that was untrue. Then it goes on to say another footstep that while he was being reviled, he didn't revile in return and he uttered no threats. And what this is talking about is while Jesus was physically being beaten, while he was verbally being assaulted, while he was verbally being insulted, do you know how Jesus responded? He didn't say a word. He didn't say a word. That one's pretty hard to follow. Because how many times have we been reviled or how many times have Somebody came at us and we stayed quiet. Let somebody cut you off on the road when you leave church. Let somebody get over without turning a blinker on. Let somebody go before you when you pull up at the stop sign and you know good and well you beat them there. That is the very reason that you will never have a sticker on your car that says Chestnut Mountain Church. <laughs> I don't want to deal with it. Because here's the problem. When somebody does cut you off and you respond, unlike Jesus, guess who's gonna get the phone call? I am. This church staff is, and I'm not bailing you out. 
So therefore, if you're going to go to the information desk, there will not be a sticker for your car. We give away coffee mugs. That way they stay in your house. <laughs> Nobody sees it. All right? But you know, the world looks at Jesus and the way he responded and they think he didn't respond because he was weak. He didn't respond because he was weak. People want us to get fired up. People want us as believers to respond like the world does so they can really reveal to us how weak we are because what you gotta realize is what it took for Jesus not to respond is what we're gonna read about in 2 Peter when it talks about one of the characteristics of God, one of this trait, one of the footsteps that Jesus has left for us is self-control. Ouch. Is self-control. So to be self-controlled, it's not the signs of a weak person, but it's the signs of a very, very strong individual. And so for Jesus to be hanging on the cross, being killed, being murdered, he had all authority, he had all power. All he had to do was call a legion of angels to come and rescue him, but he loved you enough that he didn't say a word. He was self-controlled. And so then as we unpack all of chapter two, you know, these footsteps are all over this chapter. And that's why there's parts of this chapter that are very easy to skip right over because they're not easy. Because they convict. And you know, I should have mentioned this a moment ago, but church, we've got to get back to a place where we're thankful for conviction. Because number one, when the spirit of God convicts you, the first thing that you celebrate is that God is talking to you, is that God is revealing truth to you. And you do know that conviction is the very thing that brought you to salvation. When the spirit of God convicted you, you knew that you were lost on your way to hell and you needed a savior. And you knew that the sin in your life was your sin. And you know that Jesus Christ is the one who paid that price. And that conviction in your heart, that beating of your, of your heart coming out of your chest, your hands sweating, your forehead, whatever that conviction felt like or looked like, that is the spirit of God speaking to you. And church, we've got to get back to where we're thankful for conviction. Thankful that God is not done with us. Thankful that God is wanting us to walk in his son's steps. And we continue to see those examples all throughout this chapter. And, and every time I read one of these steps or, or God showed me one of these footprints that was being left, I got convicted. Verse 11, it even talks about that we're to stay away from the things that tempt us. How many times does life's struggles hit us in the face and we run to the very thing that tempts us? We run to the very thing that we're on our spiritual high that we can beat. But all of a sudden when we go in the valley, all of a sudden that's what we find ourselves running to is the very thing that tempts us. Verse 13 through 20, it says that we have respect for the governing authority. Did you know that it says that when we have respect for the governing authority, this is actually the mark of a believer? That when we submit to the laws of the land, when we do what we are, and look, I don't like all of it. I read something this week where a guy said that he had, he had realized in his life that his entire body was saved except for his right foot. Because he got a speeding ticket about every other day. And he said, I just can't this, get this area to submit to authority. So therefore it is lost. The grace of God has saved the rest of me, but this part will not submit. Joey Walker, how many people you know like that? A lot of them, right? Yeah. But we've got to submit to the governing authority. And then in verse 23, another footstep was what Jesus did was in his sufferings, the Bible says in suffering, he seeks God. In suffering, we seek our father. 
In suffering, we chase after the one who died for us. So I know that a lot of these examples, a lot of these footsteps that we read about that that we've been called to follow, that we've been called to step in, I know it's tough. But you know, that's part of why God saved us is he's molding us into the image of his son. And when we're being molded, it's gonna be painful. But I'm thankful that a father is wanting me to look like his son. That he's not quit, that he's not given up. But not only does, does he leave examples, not only does he leave footsteps, but there's one more thing that I want to mention that Jesus leaves for us. That he has left for these new Jewish believers who've found their faith in Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. So he's left for us an example and he's also left for us a purpose. He's also leaving for them a purpose. And so the purpose that we see, we're gonna read about in just a minute in verses four through six. And I want you to go ahead and we'll go and jump there right quick. And this is a verse we read a moment ago, part of it. That's one of those pep rally verses, if you would. But in verses four through six, he tells them, he says, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but as a choice and a precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ. And we'll stop right there. You see, in the moment that Jesus overcame death, hell, and the grave, in the moment that the whole world thought that they had beat the Messiah, that he was not who he said he was, in the moment of his resurrection, he stepped out of a hole in the side of the earth And God took his son and he planted him and he said, this is the cornerstone. This is the cornerstone on whom I am going to build. This is my son. This is the cornerstone. This is the plumb line. This is the one that will establish my kingdom here. And he says that and he tells them, he says that you will be built up also as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. So what he's telling them is he says, look, at the moment of your surrender, at the moment of your salvation, you are also now being placed on the cornerstone and you are also being like a rock, like a brick, and you are what I am going to use to build up my spiritual house. The same way that a brick mason would display a brick on the wall of a house is exactly what God wants to do with all of us. He wants to use us as followers of Jesus Christ to build up his spiritual house for a holy priesthood. So at the moment of your salvation, at the moment you were saved, at the moment you surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, hear me when I tell you this, you were brought out or you were quarried I out of the pit of sin and you were cemented by the grace of God into the house of God. We were down in the pit, we were lost, we were separated from God, but at the moment of our surrender, God took his almighty hand and he quarried us out and he used the grace of God to cement us to the wall of his spiritual house where we are now on display, where we are now being looked at, where we are now being watched. And the reason that we have been quarried out is for salvation, but also the reason that we've been put on display is to bring him glory. Is to bring him glory. And so as we are being watched, as people are seeing us, what he challenges 
these believers with now is something that I think is very sobering, if you would. I want you to look at verse 11 and 12. He says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, who is the lost, who those who don't know Christ. That's us. That was us before we came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You see, what he's letting them know is he's letting them know There's a lost world that's watching. Chestnut Mountain Church, what we need to be reminded of today, there's a lost world watching. And as I used the analogy a minute ago of a mason, of a brick mason using the bricks to build his house so that all of the world can see you. Look, you can't drive by a brick house and not notice the brick. It's on the outside, it's what you see. But the question that, that God revealed to me in my heart for my life was this. And I really hope it rocks your world as much as it did mine. When the spirit of God asked me, Brian, does your brick bring beauty to my house? I would ask you the very same question. Does your brick bring beauty to God's house? You're on display. A lost world's watching. Are we bringing beauty to God's house or do we look misplaced? Do we look like we don't belong on that brick wall? Because the world is watching how we're going to respond to suffering. The world is watching how we're going to respond to persecution. The world is watching how we're going to respond to authority. The world is watching to see how we're going to respond to temptation. So the way that we respond, does it bring beauty to God's house? Because Peter says that they observe. He's talking about, he said, they're observing the good deeds, but I can promise you if they're observing the good ones, guess what else? They observing the bad ones. And I want you to understand that the words observe there translate that it's not just a passing glance, but it's a concentrated focus. That they are watching you. That they're watching me. And so I've, man, look how, aren't I quite the artist? <laughs> don't you dare tell me my lines are sloped. You know how many times I've erased it to get them as level as I could? <laughs> oh, this is not a good thing for an OCD person to try to do at, at 8.30 in the morning. But anyway, but I responded well. <laughs> I had my kids watching. But, we were, but what we have here is obviously a representation of a, of a brick wall, everything is in uniform, everything looks the same. And if you can just use your imagination, it would look like a uh, somewhat a beautiful brick wall. But I want you to, I wanna ask a question. I'm gonna ask for your little interaction here, but Wes, what do you see now? A different brick. Jeff, what do you see now? Kelly, what do you see now? Same thing. 
You see, this is exactly how close a lost and a dying world watches because what a lost and a dying world sees is they don't see all the beautiful bricks that are still in place. All of their focus goes to the one that doesn't fit. The one who doesn't line up, the one who is not living out their faith, the one who is continually falling into sin, the one who is not pursuing holiness, the one who is not pursuing righteousness. And look, I know that this is hard to deal with, but this is how close they're watching us. They're waiting for the one person to fall. They're waiting for the one person to crumble. Why do you think when a pastor falls in to moral, to, to being immoral or falling into temptation, why do you think it's plastered all over the news? It's because a lost world is hungry to watch you fail and to watch me fail. But that's how closely they are observing. So the question is, is church, does your brick bring beauty to the house? You know, uh, when I was in college, I was playing basketball at North Georgia and I, every game I would wear a, a WWJD bracelet on my ankle because I used it for my own accountability because I knew how I often responded to referees. And I remember that I wore that and I would, I mean, it took a physical act to put it on before every game. And I can remember praying, God, give me the strength and so many words to be a beautiful brick for your house during this game. And so we had played a game one night and I may or may not have gotten teed up. And I remember I walked into my kinesiology class the next morning and my kinesiology teacher was a, a faithful man of God. And I remember as I walked into class, he said, Brian, if you don't mind, I want you to stay after class with me for just a minute. You know, that's never good. And so I was thinking, okay, I failed a test or something like that. I walked up and Dr. Temples looked at me and he said, Brian, he said, man, he said, I am so thankful that God has given you the platform that he's given you. See, I was very active also in the Baptist Student Union at, at, at North Georgia College. I was singing in a group called Exaltation where we were going around to churches and leading worship, but I was also on a basketball team. So God had given me a platform. But I remember Dr. Temple's looking at me that day and he said, you know, I love your platform. And he said, I love the fact that you wear a reminder on your ankle. He said, but I see it, but guess what? Everybody else does too. And he said, Brian, he said, uh, the way you responded last night, is that the way that Christ would want you to respond? Some of you are going, I can't believe he's judging you like that. I can't believe he's pointing your finger at you like that. Can I tell you right now, we need more Dr. Temples in our lives the reason that we want you in a group is because I want to be surrounded by people who are gonna call me out when I get out of the footstep that Jesus Christ has left for me. And a lot of times he will use that brother or sister in Christ to be that hand that pulls you back in. But we've gotta get back to a place, church, where we're thankful conviction, where we're thankful that God has given people to walk through us in this life that will call us out when we're walking in sin. But we don't like to hear it. We don't like to hear it, but I can tell you right now that I am so thankful for Dr. Temples. I'm so thankful that he called me out. And I know that you're sitting there this morning and you're saying, man, this is the most legalistic message I've ever heard. See, I knew this whole Christianity thing was just about following a bunch of rules. I knew there was a bunch of do's and it was a bunch of don'ts. And this is exactly why I don't want anything to do with it. Can I tell you this morning from the bottom of my heart, what we've shared from God's word this morning is the farthest thing from legalism that you can ever imagine. 
And the reason that it's the farthest thing from legalism is because if you as a follower of Christ, if you've experienced the love and the forgiving power of God's mercy and grace, if you've experienced the miraculous, if you've experienced security that comes with salvation, if you've experienced his love, if you've experienced this community, then church, what we should want is a lost and a dying world to be attracted to that. This is the very reason that we are to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Because I don't know if you remember, but everywhere Jesus went, people followed him. We should be living a life to where people are following us here and ultimately following us to him. But does our brick bring beauty to God's house? Are we allowing the word of God to convict us? Are we allowing brothers and sisters in Christ to speak hard truths to us? But church, there's a lost and a dying world watching. Is how we respond pointing people to the cross? Is how we respond bringing beauty to his house? And so the invitation, response, whatever you want to name it, um, it's going to be a little bit different this morning. I want you to go ahead and stand to your feet. And I'm praying this morning, I I want to be sensitive to what God's speaking and what God's revealing to, to me and But I'll just be honest, I really, really hope that as God's word was read this morning that you sat in your seat and as a follower of Christ, you were miserable because of the spirit of God working in your life. Because when the spirit reveals to us things that we like or things that entertain us and We know in order to to be holy because he is holy that it may be us having to give those things up. We know that's hard. We know that's painful. But church, can I tell you, we don't have time to mess around. We don't have time to mess around. And so this morning, this is gonna kind of be a threefold invitation and And I don't want you to wait till the song starts. I know I say that often, but thank goodness in the nine o'clock, they started begin, they moved before we ever opened a a song. But the first response or the first call that I would offer this morning is, I would ask you the question is, what has the Holy Spirit revealed to you today that's not bringing beauty to his house? But here's what I wanna encourage you with. As the same spirit who has revealed that to you this very morning is the same spirit that when we will get honest before God and we will fall on our face and repent of our sins, when we will ask for forgiveness, guess what the blood of the Jesus does? He casts that sin as far as the east is from the west. And so who this morning is honest enough to go ahead and take a step out this morning and say, I am thankful that the Spirit of God has revealed something to me today. Look, you're not gonna announce it. I'm not gonna give you a microphone. We're not ironing out your laundry, but who is willing enough to say, I am thankful for the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he has revealed to me today what doesn't bring beauty to his house and then us fall on our knees and say, God, forgive me. God, give me the strength to overcome this. Give me the strength to repent, which means to turn away from the very thing that entertained me. So I want you to go ahead and if the spirit of God has revealed that to you, and church, here's the truth. If we're not moving, that means we got it all together. Means we got it all together. And every area of my life is bringing beauty to the house of God then you need to get on your knees and confess for lying. 
what area of your life doesn't bring beauty to his house? And I just want to encourage you with the heavenly father standing right here saying, come on, my child. Come on, my child. Now, the second layer to this invitation is maybe you're here this morning and you've never been placed on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Maybe the Spirit of God has been working on you. Maybe the Spirit of God has been drawing you. Maybe the Spirit of God has been knocking on your heart's door and you've not opened, you've not asked. You continue to shun, you continue to push him away. I'm asking you this morning, don't leave here today without surrendering your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. You say, well, Brian, I can't live up to all these expectations. I can't live up to all of it. That's the very reason he's calling you. That's the very reason he's called me. So maybe this morning you're here and you say, Brian, I don't know Jesus. And this morning I want to know him and I wanna make him the Lord of my life. I'm gonna be down on the floor in just a minute. And I would invite you, come and share that with me. Not so that we can make fun, but I just wanna show you from God's word what it looks like. And I do. I want to celebrate with you. You got a family in here that wants to celebrate that with you. But you know, maybe this morning you're here and this is the last layer to this invitation is, maybe you say, well, Brian, I, I've surrendered my heart and my life to Christ. I, I know I've been saved, but I've never publicly been put on display. You say, well, what do you mean? That mean you're gonna like stick me up at the sign, road with a sign that says I'm saved? No. But you know what Jesus did is he followed through in believer's baptism, making a public profession. The baptism is not what saves you, but the baptism is what announces to your brothers and sisters in Christ that you have now surrendered, that you are now washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've been saved, but you've never followed through with believers baptism, your response is gonna look a little bit different. Because obviously we don't have any water out this morning. I'd do it right now. But in the back of every seat, there's a card. And on that back, it has a box for you to check that you wanna be baptized. You would fill out your name and address and phone number and email on the front. And if you fill that out and you have a, a desire to be baptized, to, to let your profession of your faith be made known to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you say, well, Brian, that just, why do I need to do that? Jesus did. That's another footstep he left. That's another footprint that he left for us to walk in. But if you fill that out this morning, then you will be contacted tomorrow and we will get you put down so that we can celebrate with you your life in Christ. So this morning, I just want us to be obedient. You've heard the response, you've heard the invitation, but what has God revealed to you today that doesn't bring beauty to his house?